Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. You know, we had a, uh, a project to work on as a couple last time, which involved writing a letter to one another, and uh, we had talked about the gentleman making sure that that project got done, and we hope that it did in most cases. It actually was a little bit of a handicap for the guys who had to go to the men's conference down in Pine Cove in Texas because they were, they were knocked out of the box for Friday, Saturday, and, and most of Sunday, but... Uh, hopefully, if you went to that and you weren't able to get that whole thing done, that, that uh, you will get her done. It's important that we do those things because that allows us to take the principles we're looking at and then apply them. Uh, anybody really enjoy that little project at all? I see. That, yeah, okay. I think it's a good one to do, uh, a, a good practice. And for some of us, it gave us an opportunity to express some things we haven't expressed in oh, maybe a couple of years, or maybe five years, or maybe 10 years, or whatever. So we're glad that you took some time to do that. I do want to remind you, we talked about last time, uh, about how young love is such a special thing. Uh, but also we talked about how seasoned love is even better. And we showed you a clip from Harry Met Sally, and I want to show you another clip. And just think about this seasoned love and how special it is. Take a gander. I was sitting with my friend Arthur Kornblum in a restaurant. It was a horn and dotted cafeteria. And this beautiful girl walked in, and I turned to Arthur, and I said, Arthur, you see that girl? I'm going to marry her. And two weeks later, we were married. And it's over 50 years later, and we are still married. Uh, he was a head counselor at the boys' camp, and I was a head counselor at the girls' camp. And they had a social one night, and he walked across the room. I thought he was coming to talk to my friend Maxine because people were always crossing rooms to talk to Maxine. But he was coming to talk to me. And he said, I'm Ben Small of the Coney Island Smalls. At that moment, I knew. I knew the way you know about a good melon. <laughs> what happened was, I went to a matinee of It Happened One Night. And just to the scene when Claudette Culver hikes up her skirt to get a ride, the projector broke. If that projector would not break there and then, I would not be on the 313 trolley heading home, which I was. When who should sit next to me but my friend Louise, who says, let's go get an ice cream soda at Walgreens. We always went to Walgreens. So we get there, sit at the counter, and I say, uh, get me a black and white. That's a chocolate soda with vanilla ice cream. You know what the guy says to me? You're out of vanilla ice cream. <laughs> How can you be out of vanilla ice cream? So Louise says, so order something else. But my heart was set in the black and white. So we go over to Armstrong Schroeder's, 
which I want you to know. I was never in my life before and since. I'm sitting there, drinking my black and white, but who should walk in? My brother's friend, Stanley, who just bought a new car. <laughs> Duesenberg, he tells me. Go out into the street, take a look at it. So there I am, looking at a car, uh, who should come up with this handsome man who says, oh, this is a beauty. What kind is it? I say a Duesenberg. So if not for a broken projector, I would be sitting here talking to you alone. I was just walking down the street. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I love that one. You know, that's, that's what we want you to experience. We want you to have a, a seasoned love that is able to just grow more ripe over the decades. You know, maybe the classic example of seasoned love was Gordon and Norma Yeager. Gordon was 94 Norma was 90, and they had been married for 72 years and died holding hands with one another within minutes. You know, that's really what we want for you, and that's what we want to experience. And, and that's one reason why we're doing this in these evenings, to spend a little time talking about marriage. And we want to talk tonight about resolving conflict. And for many of us, this maybe is the most important critical need in our marriage relationship to know how to do this. As you have your notes there, I want you to write something on the very top of the page after you flip that title page over where it says um, resolving conflict. On, above that, I want you to write a little phrase, all right? Are you ready? Here we go. If you keep doing what you've done, you'll continue to get what you got. I'll repeat it. If you keep doing what you've done, you'll continue to get what you've got. If you keep doing what you've done, you'll continue to get what you've got. Now, I want you to notice in your notes there, it says that conflict is common to all marriages. So let's just sort of stop right there. I mean, the truth is, I've got conflict, you've got conflict. All of God's children have got conflict, or we might describe them as intense moments of fellowship. We've all got conflict, and we can have conflict over all kinds of different things. Have you noticed that? All different kinds of things we can have conflict over. For example, we can have conflict over something as simple as a tube of toothpaste. You see, there's some of us who say, well, what you do with toothpaste is you just grab it, and you just squeeze it wherever you want to squeeze it. And some of you are shaking your head, no, I know what kind of person you are. No, you're saying, no, you're like this. Yes. See, because this stuff is so valuable, so incredibly valuable, you have to carefully squeeze every little piece out of it. We can have conflict over something as simple as a tube of toothpaste. We can have conflict over something as simple as this, yes, a roll of toilet paper. Because some people say, well, what you need to do with the toilet paper is it, it needs to come off the top of the roll. Other people say, no, 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 it should come over the back part of the roll. That way, if you have a cat or a kid or something, it just spins around like this. How many people think it really should come off the top of the roll like this? 
Yeah, quite a number. How many people think it should come off the back of the roll? Like, you know what? You're sick if you think that. <laughs> Everybody knows it comes off the top. We can have conflict over all kinds of things. You tell me, what are some examples of things we have conflict over as husbands and wives? I want to hear from you out loud. What well, money? What was that? Driving. Thermostat, yeah. What was that? Being ready on time. Directions. Kids, exactly. You know what? The top three issues that we normally have conflict over in marriage would be money, kids, and sex. Most people don't yell that one out, but it is one that we have conflict over. So I want you to notice in your notes, it says that conflict is common to all marriages. Therefore, the goal of marriage is not to be conflict-free, but to, and here comes three key words, handle conflict correctly. You might underline those in your notes when it occurs. You see, men and women, conflict is inevitable, but combat is optional. Very important to remember that. And you also notice it says in your notes, uh, I think letter A, it says, all marriages suffer from various degrees of pain and anger brought on by a partner's offense. And you know, oftentimes, I don't know why, but we tend to think it's our relationship which is the only one that gets into this kind of a thing where we have conflict. It's just us. Why are we the ones having conflict? Well, the truth is we're all having conflict. And, and even people like Bruce and Janet have conflicts. You know, it's interesting, you know, we have the opportunity to work with family life, and so we go around the country and we speak that weekend to remembers. And there was one particular time we were flying together, and uh, we decided to get to the airport extra early because we wanted to have a romantic breakfast together at the airport before climbing on the plane and going and ministering to people. And what happened is we both had a, a roller carry-on bag, and here's what actually happened with us. We got into an argument and a conflict about exactly where we were going to park those bags just so we could have a romantic breakfast together. So it's not just you as a couple, as a husband and wife. It's something we all deal with and we all struggle with. So let's just get real, all right? I want you to turn to somebody who's sitting next to you and say this out loud to them, all right? Are you ready to do it? We're going to say this. We fight too, all right? Just everybody just do that right now. Just say it out loud, real loud. We fight too. Okay, good. There's nothing like public confession, you know? It sort of cleanses the soul. We all have conflict and we all fight with one another. I want to read to you a poem. It's, it's written by a gal by the name of Den, uh, Deborah Jean Morris, and this is what she wrote. And this really catches the spirit of things, I think. She's looking backwards and she says, In those days, the words, I love you, honey, were said with 50 different inflections and meant 50 different things. They could have meant thank you for opening the ketchup bottle, even though you said that I had loosened it first. Or I enjoy our talks when you come home from work and there's just the two of us to share and dream. Or simply that I appreciate all those things that make you up. But somewhere along the way, we turned. It wasn't one action or one work, but a series of 
little unresolved spats and quarrels that now make the TV the solution to the problems of a hard day and silences us when we should say thank you or you really look nice today. Today I no longer tell you that I love you because the sound of those words mocks the special meaning that they carried when we were first wed and it is too painful to remember that those feelings we said we would never lose were tear by tear left in the past. Anyone want to go there in your marriage? No, nobody wants to go there at all. Well, that's why having a session like this is so very important. So we want to talk about resolving conflict, and we're going to see that there are three ingredients or three keys to resolving conflict. Notice letter A says that all marriages suffer from various degrees of pain and anger brought on by a spouse's offense. Therefore, you might underline these next few words, the first key to resolving conflict is understanding the anatomy of anger. We really need to understand anger a little bit. Letter B says the choices you make during a conflict will either drive you apart or bind you together. Therefore, we can underline these words, the second key to resolving conflict is learning how to lovingly confront your spouse. And then letter C says, when we fail to deal properly with conflict in our marriage, we move towards isolation. Therefore, underline this, the third key to resolving conflict requires that we learn how to seek and grant forgiveness. So as you look at that, we want to talk about it for the next few minutes, these three keys. The first key understanding the anatomy of anger. The second key, learning how to lovingly confront our spouse. The third key, requiring that we learn how to seek and to grant forgiveness. Sounds simple. (laughs) Sounds like it should be simple, but it usually isn't. So let's begin with that very first key. Resolving conflict requires understanding the anatomy of anger. Notice letter A informs us that when we are hurt by our mate, our spouse, Our natural tendency, think about that for a moment, our natural tendency, our flesh tendency is to respond in one of two ways. And by the way, both of these are wrong. The first way we tend to naturally respond when we're hurt is to stuff it. Uh, That involves just rejection and withdrawal. To To the right of that, just write the words bottle up. Someone who stuffs it bottles the hurt and anger up. Second wrong way of naturally doing it is to vent it. Number two, vent it. This is the anger, the aggression, the hostility. Inside that, you can write the words blow up. Blow up. And we have this natural tendency to respond in one of two ways, to to stuff it, to bottle up. And you know, when, when we're doing that, and our mate is trying to communicate to us, we, we may say, they say, is there something wrong? No, there's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong. Or we might say, just stay away from me. Stay away from me. Or maybe there's just silence. Just nothing. By the way, if, if you're not talking to your spouse, you know that you're saying volumes by that. So so one natural tendency is to stuff it or to bottle it up. Another one is to vent it or to blow up. 
Uh, and, you know, this is where someone just finally just lets loose, you know, just kind of like, you know. And when they all over you, then they say, you know what, I, I feel better now. I feel so much better now. I got all of that out all over you and the venting that goes on. Now, what's interesting is that all of us do both of those natural tendencies at certain times, but we have a tendency, and I want you to think about this, to major in one or the other. So you think about to yourself, what's your major? Are you more prone to stuff it, bottle it up, or are you more prone to vent it and to blow up? Everybody has a major. Mine is much more to vent and to attack. I'm much more prone to that. Janet would tell you that her tendency, her natural tendency, is more to stuff it and, and to withdraw. Notice letter B says, for many people, anger is the most common response when conflict occurs. And we have a, a verse from the New Testament, James 1.19. Let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. I want you to notice, it doesn't say don't get angry, but it says that we should slow down and try to understand why we are angry. It's very important to do that. So why do we show anger? Well, one reason why we show anger is that our rights, quote, quote, have been violated. You know, I feel like I have a right to be appreciated. I have a right to have things the way that I want them to be. I have a right to have it my way. And we have this sense of rights, and when our rights have been violated, we can be angry. Another reason why we show anger is our expectations have not been met. And, and you know what it's like. I mean, maybe, for example, as a mom, and you've got kids in the home, and your expectation is that that you wanted to have a nap, and the kids wouldn't go down. And you find yourself angry over that. Or, or maybe life has just been difficult. And, you know, in your mind, you're thinking life is going to be smoother than this. Our marriage is going to be smoother than this. And so we get angry because our expectation wasn't met. You know, maybe you had an expectation that when your spouse was at home, in the evening, that they would help the kids with homework. Instead, you're the one doing all the helping with the homework. And you had an expectation it was not met. Maybe you wanted to have a cuddle time that evening, and, and the other person said, look, I'm just, I'm just too tired, and, and there's some expectation that's not been met. You know, I talked a little bit about the walk-on pantry. Remember that? We talked about the little list on the refrigerator, you know? I can remember one particular day when I worked all the way through lunch, and I came home, I was starved, completely starved, and I said, I'm just going to make myself a sandwich, and I go to where we keep the bread, and guess what? There's no bread. It's been on the list for three days, you know? Again, I had an expectation that when I wanted bread, the bread was going to be there, and when the expectation is not met, uh, there can be some anger. Maybe you have expectations that your spouse is going to help a lot more around the house and it doesn't happen. And then there's anger over that. The reason why we show anger is that we have been hurt. Let her see. We have been hurt. 
Maybe the other person made it a harsh, cutting remark. Maybe they vented on you. Or maybe they have withdrawn and just gone silent. And that hurts. Maybe we feel ignored or criticized or unloved or rejected. Interesting point number two, it says, for some people it's safer to show anger than to acknowledge hurt. And I think this is especially true for men. Because you see, if, if men express, you hurt me, that's an expression of vulnerability. And we know society tells us we're to be the rock of Gibraltar. But sometimes as men, we feel like if we say to our spouse, you know, you hurt me, that, that means we're some kind of a wuss. And so sometimes for men, it's just easier to, when you've been hurt to go to the anger thing. Play it out on the anger end. It seems more manly to do it that way. Well, notice we have some good news here in our notes. It says, let her see, anger is a God-given emotion, and it can be a motivation to resolve conflict. You know, it's very much, anger is very much like those oil lights, you know, on your car. You know, you have, a, have an oil light come up on your car. When, when an oil warning light comes up on your car, what do you do? Keep driving for hundreds and hundreds of miles? No, you're saying, wait a minute, something needs some attention. And anger can be like that. It's just like a little sign going off, something needs to be addressed, something needs to be addressed, something needs to be addressed. Again, you know, it says in the, in the New Testament, be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Why does it say that? Ever, as you're studying the Bible, ask the who, what, when, where, how type questions? Do not let the sun go down in your anger. Why is that important? Letter D says that anger can be a very dangerous weapon. Very dangerous weapon. And we have a passage here from Genesis where the Lord says to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? I won't go into the whole context of all this, but notice what he goes on to say to him. He says, but if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door and its desire is for you but you must master it. What was the Lord actually saying to Cain? He's basically saying, you must master anger or anger is going to master you. What was the ultimate outcome, by the way, of the story? Remember? Anger mastered him. He took out his brother. And basically, he's saying to him, you need to put a leash on your anger. It's not that you eliminate the anger, but you control the anger. If you don't, now context of marriage, it will consume your oneness as a couple together. It can be a very dangerous weapon. Because it's dangerous, letter E says that anger must be controlled. Controlled. And, and a lot of times, you know what? I don't know, we fool ourselves, we say, anger, I can't control my anger, I'm sorry, I cannot control my anger, I cannot control my anger. And I just say, ridiculous. Have you ever had this happen? This has happened at our house. We're having, you know, a 
intensive time of fellowship together. And, you know, and then sometimes, you know, the doorbell goes off. Bing, boom. And you walk over the door. Hi, how are you? Come on in. Everything's going. You know what I'm saying? We, we can shut it off. We can shut it off. Don't believe the lie that we cannot control our anger. Now, it doesn't mean that we control it all ourselves. God has given us the Holy Spirit who indwells inside of us, and He is the, the power who helps assist us in that. We can control our anger. It must be controlled. Why? Because uncontrolled anger can result in several things. Number one, bitterness that leads to resentment. If you let anger simmer, it will sprout into bitterness. And I like to call that emotional cancer. I'm going to say that again. If you let anger simmer, it will sprout into bitterness, which is emotional cancer. And since I've had cancer two times... I know one thing about cancer, it is not satisfied until it spreads to every part of your life. And anger, if we allow it to sprout into bitterness, is emotional cancer, and it will not be satisfied until it spreads to every arena of our life. Uncontrolled anger can result in not only bitterness that leads to resentment, but depression. You know, sometimes depression is really nothing more than stuffed anger. You know, stuff it, stuff it, stuff it. And after a while, you can only stuff so much. And then we stop feeling. Uncontrolled anger can result in, number three, conflict with God. And you, you say, well, how does that work? Well, you know what? I get angry, and, and, and I'm not getting it resolved, and I just become kind of an angry person. And it's sort of a little bit like a fire hose. You ever see a fire hose laying on the ground? And then someone turns on the fire hydrant and the hose just sort of does this kind of thing, you know. And that's what unresolved anger will do. It just sort of splashes around everywhere. You know, you're kicking the dog and, you know, angry at the kids. And, you know, maybe even sprays a little bit up towards God himself. That's why anger must be controlled. It also can result in violence and even murder. That happens every week in our culture. You might write the words verbal abuse beside that. Letter F, key point, unresolved conflict can multiply the intensity of future conflicts. Unresolved conflict, men and women, is a lot like toxic waste. You know, you put toxic waste into the ground. Toxic waste is very corrosive. It will tend to seep. It will tend to throw off some explosive gases. Unresolved conflict can multiply the intensity of future conflicts. That's why you're involved in a conversation with your spouse and it's just a small thing, but suddenly there's a big explosion. A big explosion. Now, I hope most of you had a chance to get some dinner. Here we are on a Wednesday night. And, you know, I know some of you are out there and you're a little bit thirsty and you're thinking, you know what? I'd really like to have a Dr. Pepper. And it has 23 flavors. Can you imagine that? What a wonderful drink with the 23 different flavors in here. 
And I've had this in the refrigerator all afternoon. And I would like to give this to anybody here who would like to have cold Dr. Pepper. Anybody would like to have a cold Dr. Pepper at all? You're thinking, yeah, okay, well, here's the deal. There's a little caveat <laughs> to taking the Dr. Pepper. What I'll do is I'll just shake it, and here's the idea. It comes over to you, you put your face down, and then you go like this. Are you you're still interested? Yeah, hubby's already moved. No, you don't, you don't want to do that because you know what's going to happen. It's going to go all over the place. I want to show you a movie clip from the movie Fireproof, and it's, it's, Caleb is the firefighter. Remember the salt and pepper shaker that went together? It was Caleb and, and his wife, Catherine. And what I want you to do when you watch this clip is I want you to think about unresolved conflict can multiply the intensity of future conflicts. I want you to be listening for the unresolved issues they haven't been dealing with. And then I want you to watch what happens. This is a pretty real clip. As everything goes... Check it out. What are you doing? See, so you left me no pizza. Caleb, I just lit that candle. I like the way it smells. Well, I don't. Did you leave me any dinner at all? I assumed you were eating with Michael. Does it not occur to you that there are two people living in this house and both of them need to eat? You know what, Caleb? If you would communicate with me, maybe I could have something for you. Why do you have to make everything so difficult? Oh, I'm making everything difficult? Seems to me like I'm the one carrying the weight around here while you're off doing your own thing. Excuse me? I'm the one out there working to pay this mortgage and I pay for both of the cars. Yeah, and that's all you do. I pay all of our bills with my salary. Which you agreed to do. That's fair. Do you not like this house? Do you not like your car? Oh, Caleb, who takes care of this house? Yeah. Me. Who washes all the clothes? Me. Who gets all the groceries? Me. Not to mention I'm helping my parents every weekend. You know, I've got all this pressure on me, and the only thing you ever do for anybody is for yourself. Let me tell you something. You don't know the first thing about pressure. All right? You think I, I put out house fires for myself? Or, or rush to car wrecks at 2 a.m. for myself? Or pull a child's body out of a lake for myself? You have no idea what I go through. Oh, yeah, but what do you do around here other than watch TV and waste time on the Internet? You know what? If looking at that trash is how you get fulfilled, that's fine, but I will not compete with it. Well, I sure don't get it from you. And you won't, because you care more about saving for your stupid boat and pleasing yourself than you ever did about me. Shut up! I'm sick of you! You disrespectful, ungrateful, selfish woman! How dare you say that to me! You constantly nag me and you drain the life out of me! I'm tired of it! If you can't give me the respect I deserve, look at me! Then what's the point of this marriage? You want out. That's fine with me. <laughs> you know. Pew. So 
all the little unresolved things that were going on there? How did it all start? Pizza. So we're a little bit of pizza. But because we had unresolved issues, we had a big explosion. By the way, Susan, this is yours. It will calm down. It might not be as cool, but it is yours. All right, what do we do about all that? Well, notice that resolving conflict, the second key is requires loving confrontation. I love that little word, dual term, loving confrontation. You know, loving confrontation for most of us is an oxymoron. You know, an oxymoron, an oxymoron are two words that don't go together. You know, a term like jumbo shrimp. You know, it just seems like those two words don't go together. I, I like the term child safe. <laughs> this doesn't seem like those two words fit together at all. And loving confrontation is really an oxymoron to most of us. You know, we ha- I have a, a verse there from Ephesians 4, verse 15, and I'm going to have you do just a brief Bible study, okay? I want you to individually look at this verse. And then I'm going to ask you a question about it. I'll read it. But speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head that is Christ. All right, here comes the question. Look at the verse. Don't look at me. I want you to look at the verse. And here's the question. When we don't speak the truth in love, what does that tell us about ourselves? Look at the verse. When we don't speak the truth in love, what does it tell us about ourself? And the answer is, we need to grow up. We need to grow up because that's what grown-up people do. We speak the truth in love. Now, if you are a stuffer by natural tendency, that really means the key word for you is the word speak. Speak the truth in love. If you are a venter by natural tendency, the key words are the words in love. In love. How do we do this? we pull this off? Well, letter A, we speak the truth in love. Ephesians 4.29, do not let any unwholesome talk. That word unwholesome is just the word in the original language for rotten, stinky rotten. Do not let any unwholesome, stinky rotten talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. That's what speaking the truth in love is. Not rotten stuff. It's stuff that builds somebody else up. Letter B, we need to approach confrontation carefully. Galatians 6.1 is another verse that emphasizes how we are to do that. And, uh, you know, we, we fly around the country. We have that opportunity to do that uh, quite a bit. And... Um, As we fly around the country, particularly it's true in some of these smaller jets that are a little more prominent these days, um, when you get get on, have you ever done this? You're getting on the plane and you're 
you're getting ready to take the right-hand turn, and to the left is where the pilots are. And if you've ever taken a moment to just kind of peek in there, what are they doing? They have a little like clipboard and stuff, and they're going through this pre-flight checklist. There's things that they have to do in order to ensure it's going to be a safe flight. Now, can you imagine what would be happening? Let's just say that I'm, I'm on the plane. I'm sitting in first class, which I never do, but you have a direct shot, you know, right into the pilot's cabin, and you notice everybody's all buckled up, everything's done, they've gone through the deal, you know, here's the exit rows, blah, 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 you know, here's how you pass these, so everything's done, no pilots are there. You see this pilot come running in, you know, and he just flies right into the seat, slams the door, and here we go. And, you know, you would want to go, oh, whoa, 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 bro, so you slow down just a little bit. I mean, this is a critical operation we're getting ready to do here, flying this airplane with me on it. And I would just like you to slow down enough and take some care and go through your pre-flight checklist before you launch into a rush into the flight. Well, what we have there in your notes is a pre-fight checklist. And this is a good thing for us to review before we rush on into a conflict or we launch into a fight. In fact, Here's what I would like to suggest that you do. We're going to talk more about the other box on this page. But this page in your notes, you need to go photocopy about 10 times. And then you hang it on the refrigerator. You hang it on the mirror in your bedroom. You hang it near your workbench. You hang it in the laundry room. You hang it everywhere you can in the house because it is a reminder of some important things here when it comes to conflict resolution. Plus, it also communicates something to your children by seeing that hanging everywhere in the house. So photocopy it, put it everywhere. The first box talks about the pre-fight checklist. Uh, There are several things we're supposed to do. Number one, before we actually have a fight or a conflict, check your motivation. Keyword, your motivation. Yours, not your spouse's. And we need to be asking ourselves some questions. Am I out to resolve a conflict here, or do I want to win? Am I out to push my point, or am I out to understand their perspective? on this conflict? Is my motivation self-justification or is my motivation to really rebuild our oneness together? Check your motivation. Check your attitude, secondly. I mean, sometimes we are so angry. It's like we have this emotional gun cocked and it's like one false move out of you and and it's going to come everywhere. You know, and Janet and I have been there. I mean, sometimes the anger can get so hot that you're generating more heat than you are light on the conflict in the situation. And we've actually had times like this where we've just had to say, we can't talk about this right now. It's just a little too hot. Now, that doesn't mean you don't ever talk about it. It's maybe we'll do it in an hour or we'll do it later today, 
It's not just evading the problem. It's just saying, basically, we need to take some time to cool down because our anger is too hot. So check your attitude. Number three, check the circumstance, the timing, the setting. You know, by the way, kids are masters of, of this with their moms and dads. You think about it. They figure us out. They know exactly the right time to bring certain things up. They know when to avoid bringing things up. They study us. We need to study the situation. How many people have conflict? What did I say? Come on, come on, don't be semi-asleep. Everybody, all God's children have conflict. And sometimes we fail to check for the right circumstances and timing. You know, one, one thing I'm not very proud of is what happened between Janet and I when um, we were getting ready to go to her first cousin's wedding. And we were having a conflict as we are getting ready to go to the wedding. And um, Janet said to me, let's not talk about this right now. And you know what I said back? I said, you only wish we weren't going to talk about this right now. We're talking about this right now. We're going to deal with this right now. And we had this very heated discussion. And, of course, most of the heat was coming from moi. And we, we had, a, had a, this conflict going at home. And then, you know, the wedding is going to be the wedding, so you have to get in the car. And now we're driving to the church, you know, and we're having this same all the way to the church. And now then you get to the church, you have to pop out of the car. Hey, hi, how you doing over there? <laughs> Excited about coming to the wedding. You can't imagine how much joy that added to that occasion for my wife. It wasn't the right timing. It wasn't the right setting to deal with that. Number four, check to see if you're willing to accept confrontation as well as give it. There, there you go. How about that one? Be honest. And then let her see, approach confrontation with prayer. Why not? Why not? And letter D, agree on the way you will discuss resolving conflicts. You know, uh, in the early years of of the sport of boxing. I grew up in the New York, New Jersey area in two different stretches. And I grew up a time in, in America, in the United States, when boxing was really quite the sport. Had some great boxers and some great champions. And I don't know if you've ever studied, most of you maybe who are gals, I don't really care too much about uh, a sport like boxing, but in the very early years of boxing, they boxed bare-fisted, you know, now they wear the gloves and everything. They boxed bare-fisted, and there were no rules at all. Zero. Now, what do you think happened in the early years of the sport of boxing? Bare-fisted, no rules. What do you think happened? Lots of people got seriously hurt, and, and people were killed. And so they, they finally said, what we need to do is we need to have rules for how to have a fair fight. 
And so they came up with rules for how to have a fair fight. And then they realized it's one thing to have the rules. It's another thing to have somebody else who can enforce those rules. And so they would, came up with the idea of having a referee in the ring. And the referee is there to enforce the rules that exist. And the referee may come into a fight, you know, and he may rush in and he might go, that was a low blow, low blow, not allowed. There'll be penalty points the next time that happens. Or maybe he comes in and he says, that was a headbutt, no headbutting allowed at all. Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to imagine for just a moment you're in your living room and you are getting ready to resolve a conflict together. And it is a juicy one. And here's what I want you to imagine. As you're getting ready to do that, you remember that at Better Together on Wednesday nights, Bruce said, hey, if you ever get involved in a conflict at your house and you want somebody to referee that conflict, just give me a call and I'll be there. I'll be there. Wouldn't that be a cool thing? If I could come there and actually referee your conflict as a husband and wife, how many people think that would be just a nice thing to know we're going to have a fair conflict because Bruce will be there? The referee. You know, I can be there and I'll just referee and I'll go, that was a personal foul attacking your spouse, not allowed, cannot do it. Or maybe it might go like this. Uh, that was an illegal mention of mother-in-law, not allowed in the conflict. Now, wouldn't that just be fabulous? I mean, just think how much more smooth everything would go. There's only one problem. I'm not coming, okay? I'm not coming. But we've got something for you in your notes, and you'll notice that next box. It's called How to Have a Fair Fight. Oh, let's look at these. How to have a fair fight. If you're going to have a fair fight, it says you focus on one issue rather than many issues. Beside that, I want you to write a couple of terms. Pogo stick and bag of memories. Pogo stick and bag of memories. What is interesting is when it comes to a conflict, we tend to bring one of those two items with us. You remember a pogo stick, right? Remember the pogo stick? It kind of goes ba-boom, 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 ba-boom. Some of us bring a pogo stick. We're having a conflict over this issue, and then we bounce to this issue. Then we bounce to that issue. Then we bounce back over to this issue. Then we're over to this issue. Then we're over here. Boom, 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 boom. You can't have a fair fight that way. Can't do it. Other of us, others of us like to bring the bag of memories to the conflict, you know? Having a conflict over an issue, and you go, you know, give me the bag of memories. Do you remember, do you remember two and a half months ago? Remember that? Just remember that? And then not only that, but I remember a year and a half ago. You remember that one, huh? Let me pull a few more, you know. We all tend to bring either a pogo stick or a bag of memories to a conflict. Can't fight fair. 
Now, Janet, <laughs> she's got more of the tendency to bring the pogo stick to the conflict. Ba-boom, 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 ba-boom. I'm a little more of a bag of memories guy. Do you remember when I talked to you about, you know, remember? You got to leave those out of the conflict. If we're going to have a fair fight, we focus on one issue rather than many issues. You know, you can vent on 50 different things, but you can only deal with one at a time. If we're going to have a fair fight, we focus on the problem, not the person, the behavior, not the character. You say, well, how does that, how does that look? Well, when we focus on the problem and the behavior, we might say something like this. Now, that is a misrepresentation of the truth. And that's focusing on the problem and the behavior. If we focus on the person and the character, it comes out like this. You're nothing but a liar. See how different that feels to somebody? We're going to have a fair fight. We focus on specifics rather than generalizations. Beside that, you want to write two of the words we should always eliminate. Always and never. You always. You never. And you know, when you're receiving an always or a never, you're just thinking, you know, you always. No, don't say I always. I remember one time six, six weeks ago, you know. You never. Don't say I never because there was one time, you know. Just we can't fight fair that way. We're going to fight fair. We focus on expression of feelings and I statements rather than judgments of character and you statements. What does that sound like, you say? Well, it comes off like this. When you focus on expression of feelings and I statements, it says something like this. I felt very disappointed when you did that. When you focus on judgment of character and you statements, it comes off like this. You just don't care. See how much more? Hmm. Can't fight fair that way. We're going to fight fair. We focus on Observation of facts and mutual understanding rather than judgment of motive and who's winning or losing. If you're focusing on observation of facts and mutual understanding, you might say, you threw out one of my favorite baskets. If you're focusing on judgment of motive, it comes off like this. You did that just to spite me. See, men and women in our marriage, it's possible to win every battle and we lose the war. And the war, of course, is our oneness together as husband and wife. This is really good stuff, by the way. This is good stuff. You apply these principles, it'll make a difference. I'm going to ask you a question. I'm going to be a little bit of real people here. Who, if any here, got into a little bit of a fight, a spat, an argument on the way to tonight. Anybody willing to say, okay. Thank you guys for being real. Because of that, I have the book I'm recommending for this session called Fight Fair, Winning at Conflict Without Losing at Love by Tim and Joy Downs. It's yours. All right, I'll just leave it up here. You can pick it up. Thank you for being real. Really appreciate that. It's a great book, Fight Fair is the name of it by Tim and Joy Downs or some of our friends. 
So resolving conflict requires, number one, understanding the anatomy of anger. Second key is loving confrontation. The third key is resolving conflict requires forgiveness. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other. Uh-oh, don't skip the next phrase. Just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. You know, sometimes we just need to step back for a moment when, when our spouse and our eyes has failed in some way and we need to say, how many times have I failed? How many, how many times have I done the wrong thing? Resolving conflict requires forgiveness. Do you know that God has a middle name? You know what that is? It's really a nickname of sorts. Forgiver. God's middle name. And the idea of Ephesians 4.32 is that God forgives our mistakes and our failures, and what we need to do is we need to imitate Him. Isn't it nice to get a do-over every once in a while? Everybody likes to have a do-over. We need to do that for our spouse. The Bible teaches that all Christians are responsible to seek and to grant Forgiveness. What does that really mean? Well, stage number one, and that is the offender, you might circle that word, the offender needs to seek forgiveness. They need to take the initiative, not wait to be confronted or cornered. And the truth of the matter is, again, we're going to be real. I'll just be straightforward. Most of us are horrible cripples when it comes to apologizing. I mean, we, we really maybe weren't trained at home on how to apologize. We're going to seek forgiveness. It says, number one, be willing to admit, I am wrong. Hard to say, isn't it? I was Let's just practice it out loud together. We're going to say, I was wrong. All right, here we go. Ready? We're going to say it three times. I was wrong. One more time. I was wrong. One final time, really loud. I was wrong. You can do it. You can do it. Seeking forgiveness means, number two, to be willing to say that I am sorry. I'm sorry that I did whatever might go in the blank and that I caused you to feel whatever goes in there. You know, this idea of being willing to say I'm sorry is an expression of empathy. And we need to fill in the blank. Because we tend to say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You're sorry for what? Fill in the blank. I'm sorry that I said what I did. I'm sorry I caused you to feel rejected. Sorry that I was late and didn't call you and let you know I was going to be late and it made you feel like I didn't really care. We need to be willing to repent. We need to be willing to ask for forgiveness. This is the expression of humility, men and women. And I want you to see the little question that's right next to number four there, will you forgive me for doing blank? You want to know something? That is one of the, that may be the most powerful question on the face of the planet. Matthew 5 talks about how this is so important. Don't really be worshiping God until you've really dealt with these things. I want to show you an, another clip from the movie Fireproof. It's another section with Caleb and Catherine, and Caleb has come under some conviction. 
I just want you to watch. He's going he's to apologize, and then he's going to ask that powerful question. Will you forgive me? Incredible statement of humility. Watch the power of it. Watch it. Caleb, I want to believe that this is real. But I am not ready to say that I trust you again. I understand that. But whether you ever reach that point or not, I need you to understand something. I am sorry. I have been so selfish. For the past seven years, I have trampled on you with my words and with my actions. I have loved other things when I should have loved you. In the last few weeks, God has given me a love for you that I have never had before. And I had asked him to forgive me. And I am hoping, I am praying that somehow you would be able to forgive me too. Catherine, I do not want to live the rest of my life without you. I'm supposed to give those divorce papers to my lawyer next week. I just, um, I need some time to think. You can have all the time you need. question. Well, we're talking about uh, forgiveness, and stage two in forgiveness is the offended, circle that word, needs to grant forgiveness. Again, we're thinking of Ephesians 4.32 here. And there's some misconceptions about forgiveness. Granting forgiveness is not repression or pretending that something did not happen or that it did not hurt. Forgiveness is not condoning what someone said or did. Forgiveness is not conditional. You look at that famous verse. I love Peter in the New Testament. Comes up to the Lord and says, Lord, how often 
Now, my brother sinned against me, and I forgive him. Remember what the rabbis taught on this? The rabbis taught that you were to forgive somebody three times. After the third time, they're out of luck. Peter thought, you know, I'm really going to impress Jesus. I'll take the three, I'll double it, and I'll add one, and he's just going to pat me on the back for being so spiritual. How many times should I forgive him? Up to seven times? What does Jesus say? What does he say to him? No, it's 70 times seven. There's no limit. Is there any limit on what I forgive you, Peter? There'll be no limit on what we forgive our spouse. It's Forgiveness, though, is not forgetting. Forgetting would mean you would lose all memory. Forgiving just means you choose not to hold the grudge. Forgiving is not impossible. I can't forgive you really means I'm not ready to forgive you, or I won't. And when we've been hurt deeply, it's a struggle to forgive, but it's still a choice. Forgiveness is not an automatic cure for the hurt. You know, you fall down in the physical realm, you skin up your knee, that hurt heals over some time. The same thing is true of an emotional hurt, and sometimes we need to allow for there to be some healing. And the offender shouldn't just be carping at the other one. You know, come on, would you just get over it? Take some time to heal from the hurt. What's involved then? Well, granting forgiveness is, number one, an obedience to a command. Again, we have the verse that's on the top of your next page, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. How is all this to be expressed? Well, forgiveness is, let it be, an attitude of letting go of resentment and my right to get even. You know, my right to get even is a right that God never granted to us. That's why he says in Romans 12, remember that passage? Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Never take your own revenge, beloved. Leave room for God. See, when we let someone go, and by the way, one of the, name, the words for verbs for forgiveness in the New Testament just means to let go. And we, when we let them go and we forgive them, it doesn't mean they're off the hook. They're just off of our hook. God still has a hook. Philip Yancey said this, forgiveness does not settle all questions of blame, injustice, and fairness, but it does allow relationships to start over again. And forgiveness is an action that must be expressed by word and deed. It is a choice, letter D, to set your mate or spouse free from a debt or an offense that has occurred against you. You know the Red Cross. It was started by a gal by the name of Clara Barton. Claire Barton was once asked if she remembered a very cruel thing that someone had done to her years before. You remember that? You know what her answer was? No, I distinctly remember forgetting it. She made a choice. Forgiveness doesn't whitewash the past. It just says, I refuse to live there. Forgiveness is, letter E, the beginning of the healing process that leads to oneness. How is it to be granted? Well, granting forgiveness, we do it privately at first. We say, God, I forgive Janet for hurting me. We do it specifically. I forgive you for whatever goes in the blank. We do it generously. Let's settle this and get on with building our relationship. We do it graciously. I know I've done things like that myself. I've been late too. I've said the wrong thing. I've done stupid things too. Then the process of reconciliation, letter A, forgiveness begins the process. You might underline that word, begins the process by which trust can be rebuilt. You know, you can tear apart anything. It can be a barn, a house, a car engine. Tear down happens quickly. 
Rebuilding takes more time. And the same thing is true of trust. comes down very fast. takes time to rebuild it. So the offending, you might underline that word, partner must take the initiative in rebuilding. There's that key word, trust. Don't wait to be asked. It's going to take some time. I've, you know, my office is right over here. I can't tell you how many times I've had a couple in my office, and I've had one of them say to the other one, I said, I'm sorry, what more do you want? And I jump in at that point, and I say, Rebuild what you broke. That's what we want. The offended, underlying that word, partner must resist the natural ten- te- uh, tendency to rehearse the hurt. You know, sometimes we get hurt, you know, again, you've, you've got this hurt and it's healing up a little bit. And there's a little bit of a scab there, but some of us just emotionally like to keep picking at the scab, you know. And you keep picking at a scab, what, what really happens doesn't really heal up, and it actually scars quite a bit. So the offended partner must resist the natural tendency to rehearse that. The more you, re- you rehearse it, the worse it hurts. The more there are scars, the greater its grip will grow on you. And then discuss specific solutions to the problem. What do we do about the hurt we still feel? By the way, these are two great questions. You might want to put a box around them. What do we do about the hurt we still feel? What? What do we change so that this situation doesn't happen again? Sometimes it can be avoidable. And even ask, what do we do if we still disagree? Sometimes you can just still disagree. Well, maybe that means you need to get some counsel. Sit down with a wise couple, a wise person. Or maybe you just agree to disagree. You know, a little bit of humor sometimes helps in these situations. It's kind of fun to have a conflict and end up as you work your way through it, kind of laughing about the whole thing. You know, one of the things, I'm, I'm weird, I am, I'm very odd, and uh, I read obituaries, and I read obituaries about somebody who dies and they leave a spouse, and I say to myself, there's someone who's not experiencing any disagreements anymore, or any conflicts. Maybe it's not so bad to have some disagreements and conflicts. You still have a spouse. You're not burying burying a husband or a wife. Is it really that big of a deal, maybe? Good question to ask. Seeking and granting forgiveness in this way restores oneness. The goal is not who wins or loses, but restoring harmony and oneness. Remember we said at the beginning, if you keep doing what you've done, you'll continue to get what you've got. I don't know what your resolving conflict looks like in your marriage, but if you keep doing what you've done, you'll continue to get what you've got. But if you take these principles and begin to employ them, they'll make a huge difference. I don't know who you may be, but for some of you, this session is the whole reason why God had you come. Because you needed some major help in this area. Let me give you the definition of a good marriage. Are you ready? I want you to write it down. Just a few words. Here is a good marriage. The union of two forgivers. The union of two forgivers. I want to show you another short clip. It's from a movie called The Story of Us. And by the way, I would not recommend that you get this movie and watch it because there's a number of elements in it that aren't really so wonderful. But this scene captures such a key point. It's important to see it. 
And in this movie, you have Bruce Willis and Michelle Pfeiffer are married. Remember what we talked about last week? We talked about our natural differences and our natural weaknesses. And that's part of what they've been struggling with in their marriage. Their natural differences as male and female, their natural weaknesses. He's got a weakness that she doesn't have. And this conflict that they've been having, they're having conflict in their marriage. And they're thinking about potentially ending their marriage. They're about to pick their kids up from camp. And the idea was, is if they decide to go to Chow Funds, which is their favorite Chinese place, they're going to stay together. But if it's not Chow Funds, they're going to tell the kids they're getting a divorce. So just think about those differences and weaknesses and conflict. Watch the clip. I think we should go to Chow Funds. Chow funds. Well, we both agreed that we really couldn't talk at Chow funds. I know. What are you saying? I'm saying Chow funds. Are you saying Chow funds because you can't face telling the kids? Because if that's why you're saying Chow funds, don't say Chow funds. No, that's not why I'm saying Chow funds. I'm saying Chow funds because we're in us. There's a history here, and histories don't happen overnight. You know, in Mesopotamia or ancient Troy or somewhere back there, there are cities built on top of other cities, but I don't want to build another city. I like this city. I know where we keep the Bactine and, 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 and what kind of mood you're in when you wake up, by which eyebrow is higher, and you always know that I'm a little quiet in the morning and compensate accordingly. That's a dance you perfect over time. And it's hard. It's much harder than I thought it would be. But there's more good than bad, and you don't just give up. And it's not for the sake of the children, but they're, oh, God, they're great kids, aren't they? I mean, God, and we made them. I mean, think about that. It's like there were no people there, and then there were people, and then, and, and, and then they grew. And I won't be able to say to some stranger, Josh has your hands. I remember how Aaron threw up a Lincoln Memorial. Then I'll try to relax. <laughs> Let's face it. Anybody's going to have traits that get on your nerves. I mean, why shouldn't it be your annoying traits? And, and, and I'm no day at the beach, but I do have a good sense of direction, so at least I can find the beach, which is not a criticism of yours. It's just a, a strength of mine. And God, you're a good friend, and good friends are hard to find. Charlotte said that, and Charlotte's coming. I love the way you read that to Aaron, and you take on the voice of Wilbur the Pig with such commitment, even when you're bone tired. That speaks volumes about character, and ultimately, isn't that what it comes down to? What a person's made of? Because that girl, the fifth helmet, is still in here. I didn't even know she existed until I met you. And and I'm afraid if you leave, I may never see her again. Even though I said at times you beat her out of me. Isn't that the paradox? Haven't we hit the essential paradox? Give and take, push and pull, yin and yang. The best of times, the worst of times. I think Dickens said it best. The Jack Spratt of it. He could eat no fat. His wife could eat no lean. But it doesn't really apply here, does it? I guess what I'm trying to say is... I say Chow Funds because 
We have an application project. Again, guys, we're going to make sure that this gets done. You'll notice that there is an individual section that occurs. There's actually two parts to that. We want you to work your way through that individually. And then there'll be an interaction section that you will come back together. Um, So that is our project. We want to get that done before Sunday. Great to get it done tonight. Not get it done before Sunday. And we're going to come back together next time. And next time we're going to do things a little differently because we're going to break into guys and gals. And the gals are going to be up here. And the guys are going to be downstairs in the man cave, which is called now the Avenue, uh, which is where the, uh, the high school group meets. And we're going to talk about what the Bible says about being a wife and a husband. That'll be next week. Then what the Bible says about being a mom and a dad. That'll be the week following that. I want us to do one more thing. If you would, please take out your phones, if you would. You know that someone told me this week that texting is the number one form of communication in the state of Oklahoma. Did you know that? And we are at Wildwood developing a new texting platform to help us cut through all the clutter of communication and target groups. And we want you to be part of the Better Together text group. And we can send you a weekly reminder about homework by way of text and, and about our meeting. And, and so in order to do this, if you look, look at the slide, if you will text 295577, and then in the message line you put BT for Better Together 2017, um, then you will get some prompts back. They'll like ask for your name, and then I think they ask for your email. And uh, that way we can just, through a text, send you a reminder about things that we're going to be doing here in Better Together. Now, I will tell you this, that if you do that, you'll also get on the church's general texting thing, but that only happens one time a week, so I'm not going to drive you nuts with texts every single day. So if you want to just sit here right now, you can actually do that. If you'd like to do that, you can simply text, as it says there, to 955 955.77, just do BT2017, then you're going to get back a response. You respond, you get back a response, and then you'll be on the text update, and I can just send you text to update things. Thank you for being here. Let me just pray for us. Father, we just thank you for every marriage that's represented here, and some of you who are even anticipating marriage. Lord, we know you invented it. You know how it works. We thank you for the principles we've seen even tonight on resolving conflict more effectively. May we take these principles and implement them for your honor, for your glory, for the benefit of our family, and for the benefit of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. See you next Wednesday night. Ladies will be here. Guys will be downstairs. We're going to have a blast as guys and gals. See you then. L.
Very, very extraordinary.